Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, our 15th season showcasing stories from outstanding business people presented by BDO Canada. My name is Sandrine Rastello, standing in for Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton of BDO Canada. Hello, Mike. Hey, Sandrine. How are you? I'm good. Excited to be here. Um, this week on the show, we'll be talking with Jean Bédard, president and CEO of restaurant-turned-food business group Grandio. Group Grandio says it's a creator of good times, and it's easy to see why it owns more than 50 restaurants and franchises, including La Cage and Gibby's. But it also revived the iconic Montreal Steakhouse Moishes, and more recently it came to the rescue of microbrewer Brasseur du Monde. So I'm wondering, what will it save or revive next? I don't know, but uh, I don't think we're going to have enough time on this show, because by the time I get through all my questions and all the points, uh, this man has a, a very, uh, very colorful uh, history, and I think there's a lot of things for us to get into. So uh, really looking forward to, to having him on air with us. So do I, and also to discuss, you know, the food and the restaurant and the relationship between the two businesses. So I really look forward to that. Um, later on the show, we'll talk with Jean-François Odette, partner of Financial Advisory Services at BDO Canada, to discuss franchising. Uh, but first, let's talk about current, uh, current events issues. And uh, I think the first story you selected today is from Forbes about leadership. But what's interesting about it, um, you chose a story from way back when, 2020, my God, it feels like uh, two decades ago, but it was a very interesting one. Uh, at the time, uh, Forbes was looking at a book by Jacob Morgan uh, called The Future Leader, and he had interviewed CEOs to determine the top four mindsets and the top five skills that future leaders must master. Uh, tell me, Mike, how do you think this article withstood the, the test of time? I think I think what we've seen is, you know, the pandemic acted as an accelerator moving forward a lot of things that we thought would be five years out. So uh, it may have been uh, actually very, very opportune when this article was written. So I think it does really apply. And, and I think if you look at the, the the first four characteristics, as you mentioned, one of them is being a global citizen. I mean, we are still. Uh, living in an environment where uh, global the global economy has a massive effect on everything we do. Um, it's very interesting. I think COVID did bring an interesting perspective on global. I think it brought a little more emphasis on uh, trying to do a little bit more from home and sourcing from home. I think it also brought a very different perspective on the environment and where and how we source. So I still think the global citizen component is extremely vital, but it has probably changed dramatically in the last three years in terms of the way we interpret what that global citizen is and, and who that global citizen is going to be. I find very interesting. The the second topic is is the servant. So the servant mindset, you know, is really goes against what most of us, you know, that that have led for years feel like. You know, you're you're at the top. Uh, the the servant mindset really now is about practicing humility, emotional intelligence, serving your your leaders, your customers, your team. It's it's a whole different perspective than kind of sitting at a lonely top of a of a, of a glass house at some point. So it's it's a different perspective. I also find interesting just to go back a minute to to the global citizen aspect. I think we've seen during the pandemic also a, a bigger embrace of diversity, um, you know, from the ESG point of view, right? Like not only where employees are, are based, but also the, the diverse, to have a more diverse workforce, um, you know, in, in this sense of being more mindful 
in the hiring process. Yeah, I think I think the whole COVID pandemic and 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 the remote work has really raised uh, people's awareness of uh, traveling, uh, getting to and from work. Uh, a lot more people, I think, are consciously taking the train where it's possible as opposed to flying. Uh, and 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 I think this whole exercise of of remote work allows for people who want to be and 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 leave a uh, you know a a much smaller footprint on the world that opportunity to work from home uh, without having to uh, to sit in traffic all day. So I think it it, it has had a very very interesting um, perspective on the ESG, and I think that the awareness, needless to say, the younger generations get it much better than the older generations but you know they are the future so they're the ones that they really need to get it going forward i like also the notion of uh, one of these mindsets being a chef <laughs> balancing the ingredients uh, uh, how is that looking today Yeah, you know, most definitely. I think we have gone through an extremely difficult period from a labor perspective between labor shortage and the remote work itself and what that means to people in the office. Uh, the massive, massive implication of technology, even though it was there before, now everybody's pretty much on the same page in an organization where you, whether you're working from home or whether in, you're in the office, I think before the pandemic, it was very spotty to work from home for a lot of people. Now that technology is fluid. And, you know, there is no doubt that leading an organization in, in you know, in the coming years is going to be about balancing what is, you know, likely the two biggest issues right now, which is humanity issues, people issues and technology. And so no wonder that the, the fourth mindset was uh, being the explorer, embracing the unknown. I think <laughs> that's what everybody who's still standing today had to do. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, from from a successful entrepreneurial perspective, I'm not sure that one's really changed all that much. I think that explorer mentality of uh, trying to find, uh, you know, blue ocean uh, out of red ocean, which uh, which was a book from years ago of, of, you know, trying to find a space where nobody else is and trying to explore new territories has always been the entrepreneurial mindset. So I think what is is happening now from the explorer is the the depth and the breadth of, of uh, hiring people. Uh, you know, you cannot just look in your local environment anymore. You have to start exploring different ways to do things. But I think most successful entrepreneurs have really carried that explorer hat to, or worn that explorer hat uh, very well and uh, even before the pandemic. What did you think of the skills they, they had identified as, you know, the five top skills? Personally, I, I really like the translator, maybe because it has to do with what I do for a living, but really to master communication in, in uncertain times to make sure you, you really communicate clearly with your teams, uh, the goals, but also, you know, to, for, for the, the overall morale and motivation. Yeah, the, you know, the five topics, and I'll run through them quickly, just coaching, futurist, um, technology, a translator, and uh, a Yoda. So I would say that I would take translator and Yoda and uh, the very first one as coach. And these are massive areas. They all involve communication. They all involve Um, disseminating information, whether that is structure, whether that is teaching and coaching. The one thing that remote work has been a problem with, and, and it's in a lot in the professional offices like ours, is it's very hard to coach and mentor at a distance. Uh, that ability to, to kind of learn through osmosis, that ability to watch people in action and, and learn, and whether that is you know, translating body language, which, you know, for a lot of it is, is an issue that gets lost on screen. So I think these areas are going to continue to be, and, and let's be honest, until such time as, you know, Sandra, and AI replaces you and I, uh, there is going 
to be a need for uh, coaching and mentoring and translating so that we are all on the same page and trying to move the next generation forward uh, with the same vigor and the same knowledge base that uh, that we've all benefited from for, for many years. Yeah, and maybe that's just the moment to introduce to the, the, the fourth story you had selected, but it might be a good time from Inc.com about the importance of self-awareness in, in life and, and work, because I think it's directly linked to what you were just saying. Uh, self-awareness is is probably been uh, one of the most complicated and difficult things uh, over the years. Uh, as you know, before we joined uh, BDO, um, we were uh, I was managing partner for 19 years, and I would tell you that the, my biggest uh, most difficult task was the emotional intelligence component, but especially self-awareness. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, do not recognize the influence that they have when they walk into a room, good or bad, uh, whether that's a body language issue, whether that is the tone with which they speak, uh, whether that is being a completely different person when they're stressed out and forgetting uh, the fact that there's people around them. And people need to spend more time understanding the implications they have. On, and, and it's and it's not a narcissistic discussion of saying, hey, you know, how do I affect other people? It really is more important from the other side's perspective, because you're not getting a message across if you are not reporting the right either body language or tone, and you need to understand your effect on other people. I go back to the coaching and the mentoring we talked about a few minutes ago. That inability, you know, you can say what you want, but I believe more what you're showing me than what you're saying to me. Anybody can say anything, but if your body language is saying something different than what your mouth is saying, I got a hard time trying to reconcile those two. And I think people need to understand the implication of, you know, when they walk into a room or they pick up a team's call or they're on the phone, what is that implication? What are you, what are you trying to portray? And is it in congruence with what you're actually uh, showing? And, you know, there, there are lots of tests out there to sort of understand better how you, you are in the workplace. I remember when I first did that as an employee, suddenly, suddenly I understood why I had problems with one of my colleagues. She was a blue and I was a yellow. And, and suddenly I feel it really improved our work relationship. 100%. I think, you know, we, we, we rely a little too often sometimes on tests to categorize people. I think they're a great tool to understand yourself. I think they're a great tool to understand the people around you. And even if it's nothing more than changing the dialogue or opening a different dialogue, then it, that there's an opportunity to learn from them. And whether they're the, you know, Myers-Briggs or some of the strength finders or the, the DISCs, I mean, these are great tools that, you know, you can't say, oh, well, now I understand why everything went wrong because, you know, I'm an I and that person's a D and, you know, that's where it goes. But I think if you use it in your arsenal, uh, it goes a long way in helping people understand uh, how to interact. And there's no doubt, I think the higher up you get in an organization and the more you're trying to get a message across, the more you've got to recognize your audience. And it's very hard to recognize and understand your audience if you don't understand yourself. I know we all have very little time left, but speaking of Arsenal, Shopify had a list of how to build a brand um, from scratch, really. Uh, what did you like about that story? It's very interesting because I think it ties in nicely with our guests in terms of branding, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, 
moving forward with uh, an old brand re rekindling Moishas, for example. I mean, here's a here's an iconic Montreal name that for three years, you know, people thought was they were never going to see again. Now you're bringing it back. So when I look at things from a branding perspective, and, and I am by no means uh, a brand expert, uh, but I do I do think that you know the, the, a lot of the steps go into you know who are you targeting to sell to, and that that whether that's a restaurant or that's a professional services firm, you need to know your audience, right? We just had that's we made that statement in self-awareness once again it pops up you know how do you target your audience pick your focus and the personality okay what is it the message you want to give what is it and and i can i, I could take this on and say this is my discussion on on, on uh, self-awareness as well is what is the focus and the personality you want to give what is that message you know what's your business name what's your slogan Ch choosing to look uh for the brand colors and font i mean we've heard horror stories in the past about branding uh and not taking into account you know different international customs uh, that to find out that, you know, you've named something that's offensive in a different language. Uh, I think there's so many things that go into branding. You know, it takes us, uh, you know, like a reputation, right? It takes us 20 years to build and about five minutes to lose it. So I think uh, a lot of energy needs to go into branding. And I'm really curious to 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 talk to Jean, see what this looks like in terms of bringing back some of the iconic uh, brands in Montreal. So do I. Thanks, Mike. Our guest is Jean Bédard, president and CEO of Group Grandio, which owns well-known restaurants and franchises such as La Cage, Gibby's, and iconic Montreal Steakhouse Moishes. Jean, welcome to the show. Thank you. We will talk about your background, how to run successful restaurants in this economic environment, and the Moishes reopening, among other things. But first, let me kick it off with the first question. You've been in the restaurant business for a long time, and Quebecers are very familiar with some of the restaurant names in Group Grandio, such as La Cage or Gibby's. But Group Grandio was created only recently. So uh, tell us a bit how it came to be. Well, what happened during uh, the COVID is that we, uh, the, all my colleagues from the industry, we came together very often because we had the same issues, uh, try to open our restaurant again. So I found out that... Um, After COVID, it will be tough alone to survive in the restaurant business. Uh, so uh, I started discussion, uh, well, basically during pandemic with, with a group of in Quebec, Resto Plaisir, which owns uh, all Cochon Ding and uh, other brands. And also, uh, we have started discussions before COVID with uh, Bistro Chez Lionel, a Brasserie Française. So it became evident uh, after COVID that we should join our, our strain together to be able to start back uh, our restaurants and build a new Quebec-based company because I was afraid that we lose a lot of our good brands here in Quebec. And, and our mission basically is to grow brand and grow people. That's why we name it Granzio. So that was the idea Uh, we worked very hard during COVID. Uh, this, there were some things that we can't control, like uh, the, the epidemic. But we, 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 we went closer together as a group. And, uh, and uh, the, the example of the opening of Moish is probably the best example because we bring all the resources of the group together because it's very uh, tough to open a restaurant right now. Everything is more complicated. The costs are going up like crazy. Uh, so that's uh, basically the idea that, that, that came from Grandio. 
So we're going to take a little walk down memory lane, if you'll permit me, because I am always fascinated at what brings an entrepreneur to the stage of life that they're at. So if I do a little bit of a uh, little bit of Googling, you got to love the Internet. Uh, you know, you're a CPA by training. Right. Uh, which, you know, in and of itself, when I run through the next few things that you did in the past, or, or I got a good laugh out of that one. Um, you know, you were uh, interbox and you were managing boxers like champion Lucien Butte. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah. I, how long did you do interbox for? Uh, we were involved from 2006 to 2014. So almost eight years. It was an accident because I was not uh, okay. born to be a promoter of boxing. So now I'm even more curious. Why was it an accident? What happened? Well, what happened is that basically I was uh, advising uh, Eric Luca. We was uh, we were uh, we were sponsoring Eric Luca at that time, and he he started that uh, to that Enterbox at that time had issues with uh, finance in 2004, something like that, and uh, it was the year that the they had the strike at the and in the NHL. So I said, well, we're uh, dependent of sports why are we are we not creating some content so that's where we started it was very small at the beginning because we were doing uh, some uh, small uh, shows but uh, with Luchan Buto that was with the company got a lot of potential but uh, we brought him uh, as a champion and he started mm -hmm. to be very popular so now we and then we we came and and had some some deals with HBO with with Showtime we fooled the, the Bell Center for uh, the, the Butte Pascal fight yeah. so it was by accident but it, it was a fun period but now I'm not in boxing anymore. Uh, it, I like sport, you know, I'm a sports fans at the beginning. So it was fun for me to be very in the center of, uh, of these uh, big events. I was at the Butte Pascal fight. So that's why it caught my interest. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it was so. not a, it was not a good memory for me, uh, no. but uh, it was full. Yeah. It was yeah, not a good fight. Well, for, so from a promoter perspective, it was good because it was full, but that's, yeah. I guess that was where it ended. Yeah. Right. Um, it's fascinating. You you ran a hockey school for years with grads like Chris Letang, who played with the Penguins, Maxim Telbutt, who played with Pittsburgh, Philly, Colorado, and the Bruins. Um, you know, what uh, what drove that one? Uh, yeah. Your, your, your little history of playing hockey yourself, I assume? Yeah, I, I always, I was born and raised in a family that was, uh, we love sports. I, I love uh, the hockey. My, my kids played a lot of hockey. <laughs> And they approached me in 2005 or 2006 to became the president of the uh, Midget AAA uh, hockey team in Saint Cyprien, which is my my uh, where where I, I live, and uh, I, I started to be involved in that. Uh, and I just uh, ended up uh, la uh, this year because we made uh, we re we present the. Uh, what used to be the Air Canada Cup, and now it was the Telus Cup, the best midget yeah. uh, tournament. It was in yeah. Saint-Saint. I was the president, and it was a, a very big su success. Two Quebec teams on, on the final for the first yeah. time. My team lost in uh, against Quebec, but it was the end for me of this adventure. But that's my way to be involved in the community. You know, I, I like to be. A present with uh, some volunteers and doing these events. So that was uh, normal for me. But now I'm traveling more. I'm not there. I don't know the, the players anymore. So uh, I stopped. But it was a very good experience for me. And that was really all pretty much a sideline because you started back with the cash with uh, George Durst back in 1995. 
somewhere in that yeah. ballpark. Yeah, he I was there. president, I guess, at that point. No, it, it was in 1980. Uh, well, I became franchisee with a group in Saint Science in 1989. We opened uh, our first restaurants in May 1989. We opened a second one in 1992 in Boucherville. And that's where Mr. Durst asked me to work with him a little bit because the company was growing. He needs some support. And I was uh, I have a background as a CPS, you, you, you told the people. So uh, I, I went to help him. And he, then he told me that he was uh, ready to sell the company uh, to me and my group. So I formed a group and uh, we bought the control of the company in 1995. So at 30 years old, I became president of, uh, of Sports Scene. So that was... Uh, for a 30-year-old guys, uh, you have to remember 1995 it is the year that the Expos, uh, they, they had the strike at baseball. We were going mm-hmm. to the, uh, the, the playoffs, and then they, they, they had an NHL strike in January, and uh, North, Quebec Nordic left in April. So uh, everything during the, the first year of my presidency was uh, very kind of challenging uh, for sports, but... It was a great experience, and uh, I think that we made the things that we need to make, and we're still there 40, 40 years. We will uh, celebrate 40 years of Lacage uh, next year. That's excellent. I mean, you certainly, if you can survive that period as a sports bar owner, uh, you can survive through just about everything. Um, so you sat on both sides of the fence from a franchising perspective, right? You were a franchisee from the beginning, and then you moved over to be the franchisor going forward. What are some of the issues that you approached? What are some of the, the what are the problems that uh, that you faced either either side of the equation? Yeah, well, I think my philosophy is that uh, that the franchisor has to put on side the best climate for the franchisee to be successful. You have to let your operators operate, so they need they they have to have all the time to to put their efforts in greeting their customers. And their staff, you know, so and when I came in 1995, there was a lot of fights between the franchisee and the franchisor and and people need to understand when we're on the same team, you're you're, we're not. uh, So that's my philosophy that I'm trying to keep uh, even going forward. I always said to my team at the office. We're not a, an accounting office. We're not a lawyer office. We're in the restaurant business, and you need to help these guys to success. That's my philosophy. And John, you uh, you know you're not afraid of um, of challenges, obviously, since uh, from the very beginning and the exposed strike. I was just wondering because you mentioned earlier that when you opened Moshe's, it was uh, you know in in a very difficult new environment. Of course, we hear a lot about inflation, restaurants closing. Um, what what have you done to make sure you can survive and actually thrive in this environment? Well, uh, you have to have good people. Uh, I, and for us, like the, the, the Moishu story, we just bought Moishu's just before the pandemic. Our plan was to move the restaurant. We were supposed to do it in 2020. Uh, and and then we were not sure to open it because uh, with what happened downtown Montreal, the costs went up to uh, to go up. But we said... I think we have a strong group and it's a very nice location uh, to, and it's important for Montreal to have these kind of brands because I'm, uh, I, for me, it's, I'm not, it's not competitors. It's the restaurant industry has to be together. So we decided to go through and, and I heard great people that are as motivated as I was, uh, was when I was 30, a lot of energy. And uh, that's why we decided to go. And I, I think it's a, it's a good decision. We're very happy about the results. 
Our guest is Jean Bédard, president and CEO of Group Grandview. After talking about his uh, fascinating background, we got more into uh, his past business endeavors. And now we want to talk, I think, Mike, uh, you had a question on privatization. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate this show is not like two hours long because uh, there's a lot of things, Mr. Bader, I'd love to go in, into depth with on you. But the first one that, uh, for, you know, after our break, this first one really revolves around the privatization of the cash back in November 2021. Um, and maybe just ex explain to our listeners some of the mechanics to do so as well as the impetus to do so. I mean, we're coming out of COVID. The restaurant business is suffering still. People are, you know, not sure whether they're going back or not going back in Montreal. And, you know, you're going out to raise uh, $51 million to buy back uh, 7 million shares to take uh, to take the cash uh, private. First of all, when I became president, it was a public company. But at the beginning, it was not in terms of... Uh, uh, all the details that we have to put public, it was not very complicated. And then it became, I would say in the last 10 years, very, uh, a lot of work to do. Every uh, every three months, you have to, to publish your, your financial details, financial statement, and a, a lot of uh, things that you have to put via everything you're doing. So I had a lot of time to, to, um, to think during COVID, you know, and uh, I said, what will be my next five or 10 years? I'm almost 60. Do I want, still want to run a public company? Which for us, we were not keeping the advantage of being public companies. So we're not, we were not raising money or trying to do. But we have all the downside regarding red tapes, but also all the, I have to put all my strategy on, on paper for everybody. So I said, I think it's a good timing. I, I believe in the, the strength of the company and the brain and everything will come back. And there were some kind of people that were interested in helping me do that. Uh, and, and now what's good for the company? And that's why we're maybe in position of doing, be more active because of the, the time that we were spending on that, that we're not spending on right now. We have more time for growth, for strategy, and for things. So I'm, I'm very happy. It was a good timing because the people that helped me to do that, they make risk because we did it during we were closed. The good news is that we came back strong. And now I have a lot of fun of running a private company. I can tell you, everybody knows me and knows how I'm happy right now uh, because I'm not uh, stuck with all these uh, stuff that we have to take care uh, so basically that was the point. So I was, uh, I, I did, I want to change the environment around that. Yeah. It's, I, th I think most people don't recognize the, the massive, massive oh. weight of being a public company and oh. you know, the, the quarterly oh. filings, the reportings to AMF, the reportings to TSX, you know, everything, uh, everything mm -hmm. is going to find its way that that's going on needs to find its way out into the public. And if you're not using the mechanism, like you said, you weren't raising money, oh. the stock was relatively illiquid. What's the purpose at the end of the day? So I, I think it was probably a great move. So that that will lead me into my next question, which really is a discussion of branding. When you came out of this privatization process, did you change anything in the way you were doing from a branding perspective? Uh, regarding the the uh, after the privatization, yeah. yeah. Well, we uh, what we did is that I think we have to make a reflection of all our brands. I think we have too much brand right now in the group. 
Uh, and I believe right now that you have to be very focused on the brands that you think that will bring you to the future. So we have to make a reflection right now of positioning the brands that are not competing together. And uh, that's an exercise that I'm very comfortable to do. I love branding. You know, I love positioning, clear positioning, not complicated because uh, the, 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 the restaurant business is a people business. Some, sometimes there's young people. So don't make it complicated. So let's say for Lacage, it's uh, food, beer, and sports, you know, and that's, you have to be very coherent. So for Moishas, it's more Montreal, sophisticated. Uh, so I, I like to do this exercise it will be good, easier to communicate to the customers and, and your staff. And also it, it, it will be coherent with all your brands. So yes, I'm working on that right now and uh, I love it, you know. Now I was just wondering um, the relationship between those brands and then the food and what you sell, you know, in supermarket and elsewhere and what you serve in restaurant, how, how is that evolving? Uh, well, what we're trying to do is try to to have brands that I said got legs, you know, got potential, and you try to maximize the potential of every brand. So there's some brand that it's easy to put on retail. Some aren't because they're in a segment that on the retail store, they, they, the, the retailers don't have a appetite for these kind of, of products. So we're trying to do a strategy with every brand and some will be very strong on retail. Some it's, it's impossible, but we're trying to find the the ways to maximize the presence of these brands, not also in the restaurant, but also on the retail. So, like I said, we're not in the restaurant business anymore. We're on the in the food business right now, which maybe 25% of our revenue are coming outside our, our restaurants. And it's growing. This segment is growing. And it gives us presence to, uh, to, to our products in, in other ways for the customers. So it's, a, it's an interesting statement that you're no longer the restaurant business, you know, right? You're in the food business. And, and, and what does that change from the way you look at the businesses and the way you look at the way you position them and brand them? I mean, this is people are going to say, well, food and restaurants, it's the same business. The choice that we're making on our menu has to be coherent to our strategy on retail. So it's not independent. It's, it's a brand that's got some, some stream of revenue. There's some brand that could be very good on delivery. There's some brands that could be good on uh, takeout. So you take the brand, you see the potential in every stream of revenue and try to maximize it. And it's not the same for every brand. So some brands won't go to the retails because they don't serve the product. But we have a small restaurant, uh, Asian restaurant, Asian restaurants got a good potential on retail. So maybe we'll have not that much restaurants uh, build, but maybe we can be very strong on retail. So every brand's got its own strategy and we're trying to get the best potential of every of these brands. We'll let you plug. What was it? What's the Asian restaurant? Uh, it's uh, Iru uh, Izakaya. It's a Japanese Izakaya in uh, the new uh area in Brassard Solar and it's and it's fun it's growing Japanese restaurant is growing uh, is growing strong so we're working on uh, some project already we have only one location we'll open another one in Quebec City uh, beginning of 2024 and uh, we think and we already working on products to bring to the retail side of the business so you open the doors June 14th to Moishas what's been the biggest challenge put a new team on on uh 
it's it's a people business to have the good people to open a restaurant because as you know there were already a lot of good talents that left the industry in the past three years because of covid and when it's a new restaurant uh, people sometimes they wait until to st- they watch and see the good news is that Moishe's is a brand that everybody uh, knows. So it was maybe a little bit, I w- we were uh, su- uh, surprised a little bit because people were, uh, we, we had, when we decided to hire people, there was a lot of uh, people. So it's to have a good team and we're still working every day to build a team, train them. Uh, three years and we have the story about what will be the, the sales mix in this new location. We started lunch. The, uh, the other place, there was no lunch, so we have to adjust the menu. So this, it's a very day-to-day adjustment operation, but uh, we're, we're building something. And I think that people will be proud of, of Moishe's. They're, they're already proud, but it will, be, uh, it will be better and better and will improve in the next, uh, let's say, six months. Yeah. And you also uh, went to another uh, Montreal institution to hire a chef from Damas, right? Yes, that's right. And it was uh, the key. The key is, uh, and what is tricky a little bit, is try to keep the DNA of the, the restaurant. People, the old customer that, that are used to, the, to what they, they were used to have and, and bring some new stuff because customers are changing. The way the people eat are changing. So I think that our chef, Martiz, bring us this balance between the old uh, traditional uh, steakhouse of Moishe's and bring some new products on the menu. So, uh, because our, our goal is the Moishe's is 85 years old. We're, we want to have Moishe's for the next 85. That's the challenge. And that's pr- what we're trying always to balance, to be able to get new customers also. Thank you, Jean. I think uh, we could have continued talking about this for a very long time. And now we're definitely all hungry. <laughs> uh, we'll hear your one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs in just a moment. But first, let's check in with our BDO expert guest. Today is Jean-François Odette, partner, financial advisory services at BDO Canada. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you, Sandrine. Super excited to be with you. So you have some advice for us today uh, on things to know uh, if you consider acquiring a franchise. Uh, maybe you can start by telling us why would someone want to buy a franchise instead of a more classic business? Yeah, that's a pretty good question. I guess the, the, the value of um, buying a franchise, it really lies um, mostly in the brand. So you can imagine if you're starting from scratch with your business model, I mean, you need to build your brand and that can be very time consuming. That's a lot of resources, whether it's time, whether it's money. So when, when you're buying into a franchise, I mean, this is already established. So that, that's one big burden that you don't, necess- you don't have to worry about. So this is well established. And that goes into also the, the support that you're getting from the franchisor. So you can think about these, uh, you know, restaurant uh, franchise where uh, everything is already set up from the kitchen to, to the cash to uh, the dining room. It, it's all ready set up. So you, you don't have to worry about these things. And I mean, there, there's also uh, a financial risk that you're going to be, you know, sharing with uh, the franchisors. So, I mean, when when you add up all these things, I mean, that that could be a very good decision uh, to go for a franchise as opposed to go for, you know, a regular business where you would assume all the risk and you would be pretty much on your own. So it's it's interesting because the franchise perspective, Jean-François, is, is, is something that's been around, you know, to 
certainly for many, many years. Uh, there's varying degrees, I guess, of, of franchise uh, involvement. You know, the McDonald's uh, concept of where everything is exactly the same in every shop to some that are other, a little easier to work with. But if I'm looking out to go to go buy a franchise, what are some of the things that I should be looking at? I mean, you mentioned, like you said, the, the locations have been picked, uh, the recipes have, have, have been decided, but, you know, you're getting a turnkey operation, but it doesn't always mean it's the right thing for you. And, and you got to do your own due deal, even though you can't necessarily change the terms and the conditions, you still need to do deal to make sure it's good for you. Absolutely, Mike. And uh, th this is critical, you know, when you, you do your diligence before you put your money into this venture. Um, obviously, the first question that you need to ask yourself is, you know, am I getting into a new market or is it an established market where, you know, I'm just buying from, a, you know, the prior franchisee for whatever reason, right? So do I have an established market? Do I have to develop that market, that really changes the perspective and the risk that you're assuming as you know a franchisee. So, 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 I, to, so to me, and I assume that's, that's the, reflected in the price. Well, I mean, it has to be. So that that goes further down the road into the diligence that you're doing because if you have to assume all that risk, I mean, you 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 want to also look at the demographic, like the market that you're getting into. You know what what's what's your crowd in that area, and how does that tie to to the product or the service that you're selling, right? I mean, there there must be some you know commonalities between what you're offering and and, and you know the demographic that you're about to serve, right? So and and again, I mean, if it's not overlapping, obviously that should be reflected in the price, right? I mean, you you wouldn't pay the same price if you're getting into a new market where, you know, you still have to make your proof and, you know, um, to, to, to see some real numbers, actual numbers showing whether it's profitable or not, because, you know, you would be relying solely on studies and, you know, things that are not concrete yet. Right. So, um, but if you're getting into something that is well established, I mean, you would still look at the cash flow, uh, the, the typical type of, you know, how recurring and how steady that revenue stream is. But again, like whether it's a new market or or an existing market, that really changes the perspective from, you know, a franchisee standpoint. If you... I mean, the, the upfront fees can be very sizable in a lot of franchises. If you look at it, yep. it's important. If you look at McDonald's, yep. um, you know, and, and, and I guess like you're saying, the risk associated with all of that is is less than it would be to try and start something on your own. But I mean, we're not talking twenty or $30,000 here. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars and million dollars. Where, where does the money come from? That could come from many different places, Mike. I mean, you, you would see very often franchisees that would put some of their money into this venture because they firmly believe into it. I mean, otherwise, you would go to banks and to sell the business case, right? So that would be the typical, well, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm supported by, you know, this franchiser. The brand is known. Here are the projections. I mean, we're predicting to do X, Y, Z in terms of profit in the future, what can you offer? So, I mean, you would you would see also the typical, you know, financing from traditional lenders, which, I mean, you know, when you have a strong brand to back uh, an operation, let's be honest. I mean, that makes a big difference too, right? As opposed if, you know, you were to go on your own, nobody knows you, nobody knows the product, uh, would be a bit more difficult in, you know, right. in my opinion, to, to, to get into, to obtain financing. Have you have you seen franchise or financing? I mean, it's it's something that does exist. I mean, it, it it's it's kind of you know reflected uh, into uh, the the structure, the arrangement that you have, you know, between the franchisee and the franchisor. 
I mean, obviously you're paying royalties to, to the franchisor, you know, to use the infrastructure, to benefit from the know-how and everything else. So that's some sort of financing, you know, to, to use the brand. I guess the one thing that I, I would add on to the end of the story is, you know, if you are going to go out and look to buy a franchise, that as a franchisee, make sure you bring your own support system. Make sure you bring your own professionals, whether that's the accountants, the lawyers, whoever it is. Uh, you do you can't just take the franchise uh, agreement at face value. You need to have the right people behind you like any other entrepreneur would. That is paramount, Mike. You, you want to be surrounded by, you know, seasoned professionals that know what they're doing, what they're talking about. It's definitely worth the investment. I mean, you're be, you're you're buying a peace of mind, in my opinion, when you're dealing with these professionals, as opposed to you know save a couple bucks and then have to deal with the struggles down the road. Yeah, you don't you don't always want to be the smartest person in the room. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's good to listen to the people around you that you know that have your back. Well, lots of uh, good advice here to keep in mind. Thank you, Jean-François, for joining us. And don't forget, you can read more thought leadership and expert advice from the BDO team at BDO.ca. And as we come to the end of the show, let's ask our entrepreneur Jean Bédard, president and CEO Group Grandio, for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Well, I would say that entrepreneurs, usually they have a lot of projects. So when you go to a project, be sure that you have the good people to bring this project to success. That's what I learned because sometimes we have great ideas, but we don't have people to do it. So that's very important to be circled with very good talent to bring this, uh, this project uh, at the end. Thank you very much, Jean Bédard from Group Grandio for joining us this week on Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Mike, any final thought? It's a fascinating show, uh, Mr. Bedal. I think uh, you know brings the uh, brings the true spirit of entrepreneurship uh, and certainly Quebec entrepreneurship. So hats off to all the great things you're doing, bringing back the iconic brands, and yeah, gotta love the history of a little bit of boxing and a little bit of yeah. hockey to throw into all of that. So yeah. thank you so much for your time, and uh, it was it was a it was great a pleasure. Uh, it was a great show. Thank you. Next week on Inspiring Entrepreneurs by BDO Canada, our guest is Adele Tarzibashi. She's the co-founder of Les Filles Fatouches, a catering company that gives Syrian women a job that puts their culinary talent to use as they arrive in Canada. A reminder that you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. Thanks, Mike. See you next week. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.